to know, I'm not a cat person, but I'm using this picture up here as an illustration and kind of bring us to a point. Earlier this week, there was an article in the New York Times about how mountain lions or cougars, depending on what part of the country you're from, are, are moving east. Now, up in Watauga County, up in the North Carolina mountains, it's kind of a there's this, this cultural discussion that's been going on for years about whether or not mountain lions actually are in the Appalachian Mountains right now. Some of us are absolutely convinced that they are. Um, the officials will tell you that no, they aren't, although people have seen them. So this, this New York Times article was talking about the fact that, that mountain lions or cougars are, in fact, moving east, being seen more regularly the further east you go. And how our Appalachian Mountains are really an ideal habitat um, for these big cats and how they would help really settle out some issues going on in our wildlife and in our ecosystem anyway. I I say all that to say that I had a dream last night, okay? I had a dream. So there was, I woke up at 4 o'clock and then thought, I don't want to get up this early, so I went on back to sleep. And I started dreaming about this mountain lion in our backyard. This is no joke, okay? This mountain lion was in our backyard, and he was chasing a rabbit. And our back door was open, so that rabbit ran straight in our living room. And that mountain lion followed him. Big, majestic, beautiful cat. And he stopped right there at the door. And I'm just standing there staring at this beautiful mountain lion. I'm, I'm scared of it, but yet I'm drawn to it. And it was just, and I'm telling you, it was the wildest thing. And so I wasn't planning on talking about big cats this morning as I began the sermon, but this illustration, I believe the Lord just gave it to me, okay? He gave it to me. Now, here's the connection between that mountain lion and Aslan. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, one of the primary characters in there is Jill. And Jill is on this quest And there's a dialogue that happens between Jill and Aslan as she is on this quest. So she's thirsty. She's dying of thirst, in fact. And she comes up on this beautiful mountain stream, clear. It's just compelling. It's calling her in, in her thirst. And Aslan is there at the creek, at the the river. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. And the the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you, will you promise, will you promise not, to, not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty by now that without noticing it, she had taken a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said, 
I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. And he didn't say this as if he were boasting, nor as if he were sorry, nor as if he were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. So this morning, we've sung about the majesty of God, His splendor, His glory, His worth. We've sung about the gospel, all I have is Christ. And we've sung about our response to those two realities, that of being thankful and of His amazing grace that's been extended to us. And that's what I would hope that we would do here for a few minutes as we continue to look at an example that we have in the Scriptures. Remember, we're going to First and Second Samuel. I promise we're going to be there in a couple of weeks. Okay, I know we've been saying that for a couple of months now. But as I mentioned last week, the elders in November, December felt like it would be good for us to take a few minutes on Sunday mornings and just think for a minute about this concept of biblical stewardship. Not many of us like to listen to sermons on money. And sometimes I know pastors are afraid to preach on stewardship and on finances and on our giving and on how we're supposed to respond. But I'm not at all hesitant to do that. And thankful that I, I think the Lord has led us to think about maybe, think about this maybe in a little different way rather than going to some of the common texts that we might go to, which are absolutely appropriate. To think about it in the context of the glory and the majesty of God. Think about it in the majesty of God as it is revealed to us and extended to us most perfectly in Christ on the cross and in His resurrection, His ascension and His return in the Lordship of Jesus and His offer of grace to us, unmerited, undeserved, and our response of thanksgiving and then of generosity. And David has been our example in that, that David is a generous king, with all of his faults, and they are many, many, as we will see in First and Second Samuel. But David, with all of his faults, is still a generous king. And he is a generous king because he is a grateful, thankful man. And he is thankful because he is worshiping. He has a heart to worship. He has a heart that comprehends God in his majesty and also, even equally, sees God's grace in the way God has exhibited that to David. So that's, that's where we're at. So if you'll turn back in your Bible, I know Jason read this beautiful prayer that David lifted up there as the ark was brought into the tabernacle, as it was brought into the tent. There wasn't a tabernacle, it was just a tent. And David was leading the people in worship. We'll see how he does that as we get into Second Samuel. But then he offers this amazing prayer that, that Jason read for us and led us in. Thank you, Jason, for leading us in that time of prayer. And, it's, and, and he begins with this giving of thanks. Last week we saw, and I want us to look again at the last chapter of First Chronicles in chapter 29, and just hear again this prayer that David offered, and think about it in regard to, in the context of being thankful. All right? Now, David blessed the Lord. I'm in 1 Chronicles 29, starting in verse 10. 
Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all in your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what are my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. And we'll stop, we'll stop reading that there. I'm going to look at several other passages as we think about that this morning. There's a couple of reminders from last week, okay? A couple of reminders that are just important for us to kind of have as a, a foundation to everything that we see here. One, to bless God is to not give God something that He, we're not giving God something He needs when we bless Him, right? We understand that. David begins with this, blessed are you, O Lord God. He blessed the Lord in the presence of the people. We're not making God better off. We're not in some way expanding or improving his situation when we bless God. We can offer him nothing that in any way increases his glory, his goodness, his power. We just, we, it'd be good for us to meditate on that. When we bless God, we are recognizing, remembering, and declaring His goodness and His grace, His majesty, His richness, His strength, His power. These things that David talked about. Your glory, your greatness, your victory. All these things, we are just recounting, remembering. We're demonstrating that as we declare it and as we worship. God doesn't need anything from us ever. There's nothing we can do to benefit Him. We are called to magnify Him, make Him bigger. In our praise, we make Him bigger, all right, to the people around us. And so that's the picture that we have here of blessing God. Paul said in Romans, I was reading through the book of Romans this week, just thinking about God's majesty, His power, His might, and the gospel. Paul says in Romans, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. In chapter 11, he says this in verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. When we bless God... We are recounting, remembering, and declaring all of these characteristics. The second thing I want us to think about is something that I went through as I was kind of reflecting on last week's message and on the passage and getting ready for this week. I thought, man, I blew through this concept of God's majesty too quickly. We need to think about God's majesty for a minute. And so kind of as an, you know, as an addition to uh, an appendage to last week's message and then kind of laying the foundation for what we're seeing this week, what, what exactly is God's majesty? I mentioned it last week, but we didn't talk about it. And the idea for majesty, the word for majesty, comes from, comes, comes from the prefix mega, where we get the idea of large, expansive. We use majesty to declare what the Alps are or the Grand Canyon or something like that, right? We say they are majestic. 
And so when in the Bible, when we see this word for the majesty of God, his excellence, his mightiness, his strength, his, his largeness, his greatness, Job knew what the majesty of God meant. I was reading through a portion of Job this past week. Job says in chapter 13, though he slay me, in verse 15 of chapter 13, still I will hope in him. You see, Job got what Jill got in the silver chair. Aslan is my only hope, and I'm terrified of him. I don't want to step any closer, but I have to. Job said, though he slay me, I still hope in him. Prior to that, Job had said, will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Later on in chapter 31, in response to one of his, quote, friends, unquote, Job says in 31:23, I was in terror of the calamity of God and I could not have faced his majesty. In chapter 40, God confronts Job, right? Stand up, Job. Stand up. Dress for action like a man, he says in verse 7. God says to Job, I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? (laughs) Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? And in Job 40.10, the Lord says to Job, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. I love, I love it when the Lord uses, um, what's the word I'm looking for? What's that? Well, it's holy sarcasm. That's what it is. Yes, thank you. Susan says I have that gift. Some of you, you don't need to comment on that one way or another. But I love it when the Lord uses some holy sarcasm there on Job and says, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity, big boy. Job got it. David understood this. As the ark is placed in the tent, splendor and majesty are before him, he says. Strength and joy are in his place, as Jason read that and led us to pray it. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty, this greatness. In Psalm 96, David said, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. It's a restating, if you will, of what comes there in First Chronicles. Splendor and majesty, David says, are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. There's a connection in the scriptures between the majesty of God and being afraid. Fearing that. And yet being compelled to draw near to it. This is the case in the New Testament as well. Remember, John says in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in some places you can take glory and majesty and almost exchange them. But here is God coming and veiling, if you will, His majesty and glory in human flesh. So what we have in Jesus in the New Testament is the blinding majesty of God veiled behind his humanity, right? In fact, the the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 53 that he had no form or majesty that we should even look upon him. But it busts through in a couple of places. The majesty of God comes through the veil of humanity when we look upon Christ in a couple of cases in the New Testament. 
You see, David was recounting the mighty works of God and thinking about the majesty of God and what he had done. And the same is true for Jesus. In fact, it says in Luke 9, it's an interesting passage there where Jesus is is performing this miracle. And I'm not going to go back and read all that, but it says in Luke 9, 43 and 44, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. I had never really noticed that until I was just doing a word search on majesty. And there in the New Testament, in the context of Jesus doing these miracles, the people made that connection, and they were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, Jesus goes on in the next verse to point his disciples to the cross, to his upcoming suffering, where his majesty really will be seen, at least for those who have the eyes to see it. There's another account. Remember this one? If you want to turn over to Matthew chapter 17, where Jesus is on the mountain that we call the mountain of transfiguration. I don't want to belabor this point of majesty, but I feel like it's so important for us to to be struck, to be awed, to be afraid of, and be compelled by the majesty that we see. So on the transfiguration account, Matthew tells us in Matthew 17, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And I'm not going to read any more of the account. I love what Mark says. Mark says he was intensely white, as though no one on earth could bleach them. Did you know the New Testament talks about bleach? Mark says Jesus was so bright that no one on earth could bleach it that way. His glory, his majesty burst out of him on that mountain. Now here's the thing that that I want to wrap this concept up as we think about majesty, fear, grace, and thanksgiving. Peter, in recounting this, if you want to turn over to Second Peter, in recounting this episode in his life, Peter says this over in Second Peter, chapter 1, starting in verse 16. And the passage here is actually talking about the prophetic word of God, the word of God. He goes on at the end of the passage saying that no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's, from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, he says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We use this, rightly so, to talk about God's inspiration, His guidance, His leading of those who wrote the Scriptures. And He was moving them along, leading them along like the wind in a sail. And Jesus uses, I mean, Peter uses His his experience on the mountain when Jesus' majesty came bursting out. And he says, We did not follow cleverly designed myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, my, my Bible, the M and the G there are capitalized. It's a title that Peter is giving there to God himself, majestic glory. And that majestic glory said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter then says again, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then 19, verse 19, is astounding 
And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And then he goes on to say what the nature of that prophetic word is. Here what Peter is saying is astounding. This word that we hold here in the scriptures is more trustworthy than our own senses. Peter said, I saw it. But I have the prophetic word as a more sure word. An application for us, church, is this. If we're not seeing the majesty of God, we're not in the word. Because that's where it's revealed. If we're not overwhelmed and captivated, both drawn to and fearful of the majesty of God, then, Gerald, you're not spending enough time in the Word to even see His majesty. The majesty of God. When David was confronted with this majesty, and that clear connection between the majesty of God, the fear of God, God's grace and our gratitude, when that connection was made in David, then we see His recognition of of grace. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's this beautiful passage, and we'll see it, where God's eternal promise to David is made. That he will have a descendant on the throne forever. Some commentators call this the most important passage in the whole Bible. And what is David's response to that promise? Where God says, I took you out of the sheepfold, and I'm making you this promise. It says in in 2 Samuel 7, verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? In 1 Chronicles 29, the passage that we've read, he says something very similar. Is He's just like, Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? Lord, what grace it is that we're able to come before you and worship. What grace it is that we're able to come before you and give because it is all of yours that we're giving anyway. Here's the connection. Here's, and I'm reading a book right now by Michael Horton. And there's not any copies in the bookstore, but we will get some because it is a profound book to me. The title of the book is Sanity. Sanity. And the, and the, and the synopsis of the book is this. It is insane not to fear God. And in the fear of God, we find the sanity, the stability, and the ability to deal with everything else going on around us. When we fear God as we should, we won't fear men. We won't fear political upheaval. We won't fear national disgrace. We won't fear anything if we fear God as we should. And Horton says, that's being sane. That's sanity. The connection I want to make is this. As he's talking about this, this fear of God, he says, God is not our buddy, an indulgent grandfather, a life coach, or a golf partner. He is the sovereign creator of heaven and earth, demanding an account from each of us for our sins. First of all, sins against him, but also against our neighbor and the rest of creation that he has made. And this is the real crisis that confronts us. It is the crisis that should make us all afraid. So only when we 
recognize, realize, and, and, and say amen of the majestic character, holiness, greatness of God. When we see Him for who He is, when we see Him for who He is and we are struck by that reality, that God in His holiness is not our friend, but that this same God, the Scriptures tell us, is a friend of sinners. It's amazing. He's a friend of sinners. And He comes along and offers to those who will humbly come and seek Him we are, we are to be struck down by the fear of God, and then in His grace, He lifts us up. Somebody ought to say amen. Because that's, that's what we celebrate. That's what makes us who we are in Christ. Horton goes on to say, The experience of God's majesty is reflected over and over again in Scripture, and it's marked by paradox. There are many things that instill in us fear because they are simply evil or threatening. He says the sublime or the majestic is different. It simultaneously attracts and repels. It is the beauty and the light that is overwhelming, not ugliness or darkness. He says this, with God we encounter a power that could destroy us, but also saves us from the destroyers. There's a purity of righteousness, holiness, justice, goodness, and love that simultaneously beckon us and scare us. God, Horton says, is our problem. But He is also our solution. The fear of God leads us to faith in Christ because we see through the eyes of Scripture in the New Testament that it is Christ who took that wrath And takes that just, righteous, holy anger against sin upon himself and diverts it away from the one who hides under the shelter of his wings. Who comes and hides under Christ. And this fear of God is even magnified in the forgiveness. David said this in Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, and listen to this, that you may be feared. Think that you may be feared in the reality of your forgiveness. So here's what we're seeing. Not only by reason of what he's made, like the Grand Canyon, the heavens declare the glory of God. Not only by reason of the majestic picture of God and the glory of God that we see, believe it or not, in each other. That we're crowned, we're we're made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and honor. That Imago Dei, the image of God in us, is a glorious thing. There's, there's, a, there's an element of majesty in every human being that draws breath. And we should see that and praise God for it. But not just because of what He's made or because of His holiness and His justice and His, and His mercy, but that this God who is majestic and holy has exercised that majestic holiness in Christ on the cross and extended to us forgiveness. It should scare us to death and compel us at the same time. God's glorious, terrifying majesty and our great need and how that need is met through Christ. This is the basis of our thanksgiving. 
David recognized, I have done nothing to deserve this. And I have nothing to give you other than what you have given me already. And so this beautiful picture of the gospel relieving us of the fear of God in His holy wrath, but instilling in us a fear of His forgiveness and grace. And we're compelled to draw near to that. Because we recognize our constant need of that gospel fear. And the reality that that holy wrath has been averted and diverted away from us. And so how does David respond? And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. This is going to sound in some ways, this last part of this message, like Thanksgiving message. Because it seems like that's really the main time that we focus on gratitude, right? On this day of a national holiday. Or sometimes when we bow before our meals. Or sometimes when we tell our children that they have to say something because they've been given something. Now, what do you say? Until they're 18 sometimes. Or older. No, this is... What we have here is that recognition that this gratitude and this being thankful goes much, much deeper than that because it goes much, much higher than that. Right? It goes much higher than that. It is the way that God has called us to come and worship Him. Recognizing that, God, you are the author of everything that is good. And that by saying thank you, Lord, I'm acknowledging not just that, but that I love you more than I love what you've given. That's what God calls for. Psalm 50, verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. We will see Saul's demise. And his misunderstanding of God's word, his commands, and worship. And we will, saw, we will see David as the, as the exemplary opposite of that. That he recognizes obedience and thanksgiving as that offering that God acknowledges and receives. And it's in our utter helplessness, it's in our dependency, where we acknowledge that God is the sovereign Lord of all. And that our humble act of thanksgiving is just admitting that to him. We're just admitting our need and admitting that He meets that need. It's important we see that. I read an article this week. It was published in a psychological journal. It was written back in 1990. I have the authors here, McWilliams and Lippendorf. But here's what they said, okay? They were talking about that the fact that ingratitude is a sign of narcissism. Self-worship. Captivated by ourselves. The fact that we are not thankful is a sign of our narcissism. And this is what these secular psychologists said. Gratitude seems to be to us an integral expression of our dependency on one another. Now they keep all of this on a horizontal plane, alright? They're talking about our gratitude and our thankfulness to our neighbors. But I'm, I'm raising it up. Because the truth is, still stands. Gratitude seems to be to us an integral expression of our dependency on one another. They go on, to thank someone acknowledges our need to have been helped or enriched in the first place. 
And although those of us with predominantly narcissistic concerns may go through the motions of thanksgiving, we frequently resist expressing wholehearted appreciation. Because that would acknowledge an insufficiency on some sort. And it would be an insult to our grandiose self. Thanksgiving is an insult to our grandiose self. Because it says, I have a need that I cannot meet myself. And you alone, O oh God, can meet that need. I'm dependent upon you. I believe this is the reason why Paul makes the point in Romans chapter 1 that the distinguishing characteristic of the unbeliever is ingratitude. You hear that? It's not their sexual immorality. That's a, that's a fruit. It's not their crazy worldviews. That's a fruit. At the root... He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Verse 21 of Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. In gratitude, the lack of thankfulness is the clear mark of an unbeliever. Because that person is worshiping their grandiose self and looking to themselves. In the biblical theology that we see throughout the scriptures, failure to acknowledge our dependency on God, our humble standing below God, is at the root of every sin. So gratitude is a big deal. It is a big deal. David got this. And he exemplifies it. And I would encourage you to pull down your concordance, open up Blue Letter Bible or the ESV app or whatever it is you use in your Bible study, and just do a word search on the word thanks. And just see where it takes you. And I have gone further than that in my study of the Psalms to simply trying to segregate apart those Psalms that David himself penned, not Asaph or the sons of Korah or Moses or others. I wanted to hear it from David's lips, this idea of thanksgiving. And I'm not going to take the time to recount them, but I have a whole page of them here in my notes. Give the thanks due to his righteousness. Thank the Lord with my whole heart. There's an individual gratitude that pours out of the heart of David that he encourages the people of God individually to be thankful. Show your gratitude. He does that corporately as well. In Psalm 30, verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. He says in Psalm 107, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Then he says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So we are thankful and show our gratitude in our personal worship. We're thankful and are demonstrating and recounting and declaring our thankfulness together as the body of Christ. Praise the Lord. Give Give thanks to the Lord in the company of the upright, he says in Psalm 111. 
And then there's a, there's a multiplication that goes on in this gratitude. The Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he says, For all your sake, so that the grace extends to more and more people and may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. He's talking specifically about the generosity of God's people. And those who receive that, they in turn thank God. And so there's a multiplication to it. It's a pyramid scheme for the praise of God. It's awesome. There's a multiplied gratitude. There's one other aspect of it. In Psalm 138, David says, I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods. I sing your praise. We fight with gratitude when it comes to a spiritual battle. Gratitude is a weapon. As we thank God and declare that gratitude... We're worshiping Him with gratitude and we're declaring to the idols and the spiritual enemies of God that He is steadfast, He is majestic, His love endures forever. I'm dependent upon Him and He is faithful to keep His promises. And they flee in that praise. I want to finish up by just kind of pointing you to a New Testament passage. One you're familiar with. Turn to the book of Colossians. And this is an application as, as much as it is a, a portion of the message. In the book of Colossians, we have this picture in chapter 3 that the significance of thanksgiving just kind of flows through the whole thing. It's amazing. Paul begins chapter 3 by saying, Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. There is that, I believe, an admonition that takes what I said earlier. Go to the Word and see the majesty of God and what He is and what He is doing and what He has done and what He promises for us to do. And then later on in chapter 3, listen to Paul's words starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved... Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The peace that we have with God and with one another Paul is saying there that that peace that we have, the salvation and the reconciliation that has come to us through Christ on the cross, is foundational to and should be seen and heard in our voice through this word of thanks. Praise is the proper response. Thanksgiving is the proper response to what God has done for us in Christ. Then he also says, secondly, that this praise... And this thanksgiving that we offer up comes within the context of the body of Christ. The word of Christ is dwelling in us richly and producing the fruit of thankfulness in our hearts. And then the Christian life is just exhibited. It's it's an exhibit of gratitude. And in everything that we do, we're doing in the name of the Lord Jesus and we're giving thanks there. So do you see this in our peace with God, in our praise, in our fellowship together? 
We offer that up as a praise of thanksgiving, and it undergirds and builds up all of that. And from a thankful heart comes a generous heart. And that's what we'll see as we see this this picture unfolding for us. We are guilty sinners before a gracious, holy, majestic God. That should cause us to tremble in fear. And this gracious, holy, majestic God, in His kindness, has loved us and called us to Himself. And even before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians, determined that we'd be holy and blameless before Him. As that wrath of the majesty and holiness of God is diverted away from those who would put their faith and trust in Christ. As Jesus takes that wrath on himself. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. And my heart demonstrates that through my gratitude. Our hearts together as a body of Christ demonstrate that through our gratitude. And we'll see in David, we'll see in that example next week, that that gratitude pours out in kindness on a horizontal basis and in generosity that gives glory to God. It's an amazing picture that we see there. Let me give you three applications, okay? Just three things to think about. Pay attention to this, okay? This is what you need to talk about in life group this week. As I have mentioned just a minute ago, the Word is where we encounter the majesty of God. And as Peter said, we do well, quote unquote. That's Peter's words. We do well to pay attention to it. We would do well daily. We would do well in our attitude. We would do well in in our perspective. We would do well in our love and in our service if we are constantly being confronted with and worshiping God for the majesty that we see. We have this prophetic word made more sure, more fully confirmed. So the word is where we encounter the majesty of God. So church, let's be in it. Be in it. The cross, secondly, is where we are confronted with and where we see perfectly demonstrated the majesty of God's grace. And if you have not yet done so, I plead with you to come to Christ. I prayed that the Holy Spirit, I've been praying this week, that the Holy Spirit would instill in someone who's here or listens that's never trusted in Jesus a holy fear that one day you will draw your last breath and stand before the God who created you. And your best, your very best, will be nothing but filthy rags. You stand before God acceptable in His eyes through the holy, righteous obedience of Jesus. And that righteousness is credited to you as you trust in Him. Turn from your sin and humbly confess, I need you, Jesus. And I urge you to do that. If you don't know how to do that, come and talk to me after the service. Talk to, find a member of West, whoever's here. But come to Christ and see the majesty of God's grace on the cross. And then finally, church, thanksgiving, as I mentioned a minute ago, ingratitude is a clear sign of unbelief. Gratitude marks the believer. A humble gratitude just marks the believer in what we say and in how we live. 
And so if, like David, we recognize and worship God in all of his majesty, then also, like David, we will recognize the undeserved grace that we have received from God through Christ. And as a result of that undeserved grace, we will be overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. And as we'll see next week, then that gratitude is seen in generosity. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for the goodness that you have poured out on us in so many ways. You are majestic beyond our ability to understand. You are holy in a way that our sin has blinded us to see. But God, in Christ, the Word became flesh. In you, the glory of God was veiled in humanity but made clear for us to see with eyes of faith. So, God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning as we reflect on this message and reflect on your word. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may know, Lord, and see with spiritual eyes the hope to which you have called us. The riches of your glorious inheritance, Lord, in the saints. And the immeasurable greatness of your power that raised Christ from the dead and is made available to us. Oh, God, thank you for that. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.